Good morning again. Open up your Bibles if you have one to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs and we'll be on page 401 in the black Bibles. Nehemiah is after Chronicles and Esther in the Old Testament. Uh, The last two weeks, we've paused in the middle of a Nehemiah series to look at the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday when Jesus presents himself to the city of God as the king of the world. And then the next week, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he is a dying and rising king, that he died on the cross to take away our sins, and he rose from the dead to promise us new life. And so it's been kind of helpful as we've been going through Nehemiah, remembering that that this is all connected, right? This is one story, Old Testament and New Testament. And so Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the city of God. And they're rebuilding the city of God for the purpose of broadcasting who God is to the world. They are a community of God's people broadcasting to the world from the city of God, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. They're saying, this is who God is. God is absolutely just and God is merciful and he invites you into a relationship with himself. And so the last two weeks, we got to see how Jesus fulfills that. Now we're back in Nehemiah and in Nehemiah chapter five, We're calling it internal problems. So we left off a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago in Nehemiah chapter four. Nehemiah chapter four, we called it fight and build because in that chapter we saw that whenever you're gonna do something uh, noble, something good and beautiful, build something significant, there's gonna be forces that will come against you in this world. And we saw that taking place in Nehemiah. They had to fight while they built. They had a sword in one hand while they were um, building the wall with the other hand. And now in chapter five, we see not only will we have external enemies come against us when we try to do what's right, but there are internal problems as well. We see problems within the team, problems inside the community here in chapter five. And so we see this specifically in this story in Nehemiah and his people rebuilding Jerusalem, but it can be applied to us as well in our own families, in our churches, in our communities. Not only are we trying to achieve something and pushing against forces out there, but sometimes there's, there's broken stuff inside us, right? And that's just part of understanding the gospel, that we're, we're broken, we need change, and so our own team is going to have problems as well. So let's look at chapter 5. We'll read just the first six verses, and then we'll get to the other verses as we go through. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also, also those who said, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And Nehemiah says in verse six, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Nehemiah takes action. He's angry at the internal problems. He's angry at the injustice, at the exploitation that is happening. Uh, I would argue that we need to be angry at the exploitation and the injustice that happens in our midst as well. God calls us to deal with it also. Let me pray for us, and we'll try to uncover this a little bit piece by piece. God, we pray for your help. We ask that you would meet us here this morning and you would teach us. Um, God, I pray that you would speak through your word, that your Holy Spirit would help us, and we pray that you would um, transform us, that you would shake our hearts so that we would understand what it looks like to be generous, and we would deal with the internal problems in our midst. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from an external circumstance level, Easter week is generally for every preacher like the most exciting week of the year. I don't know if you knew that, but preachers, I know this is bad, but we like it when lots of people come to church, okay? And so it's just kind of the big, exciting day of the year. It's the day when we get more visitors than any other day. It's the day when the church is more full than any other day, and it's the day when we see the most new people. It's the day when we have people that maybe haven't been to church in a while come back. It's a day when we have new people that have never been to church show up. So it's just a really exciting day. We had some other things that kind of unfolded throughout the week that were exciting to me as well, just external projects we've been working on as a church. And so I just remember feeling like, wow, we're making, we're making some progress, right? Like this thing we're trying to build here, this church, it's moving forward. And I felt really excited. Um, and then somewhere around Wednesday, uh, I got the stomach flu. And just, it just hit me. It was bad. And I just felt really terrible Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and pretty terrible this morning as well. Now it's, it's Sunday. So I've kind of just switched now. I, I kind of, over the last 12 hours, went from now stomach flu to some kind of cold allergy, you know, horror in my head. So I'm kind of switching sicknesses now. But there's this internal problem now, this brokenness inside me, even though over the last week, there are all these exciting things happening around, right? Progress was being made in our church. Progress was being made in the community. I was excited about that, but I still have to deal with the internal problems inside of me, right? Like when I break, I can't, I can't accomplish much. I can't do much. I have to stop and pause and pray and reflect and pay attention to the brokenness inside me. Um, there's a friend of mine that had cancer recently, had a cancer in his eye, and he had to have one of his eyes removed, um, and at the same time that that happened, he was having other treatments, and he decided to get much more committed to his health, right? He became very committed to working out, to eating better, because we know that generally that helps your body heal, right? I mean, that's just kind of something we know. But the flip side of that is if you knew you had cancer in your eye, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't just say, well, I'm just going to work out. I'm, I'm just going to eat more healthy. I mean, he, he had to also deal with the problem in a decisive way painful way. He, he had to do both and. And I would argue that that's what we see in Nehemiah is we see this comprehensive moving forward with both external and internal problems. In chapter four, they were fighting external enemies. They're fighting. It was intense. And now in chapter five, they're recognizing, oh, there's some internal problems as well. We need to look inside our own group. We need to look inside our own hearts and see what we're doing. How are we fighting this war? Are we fighting this war well? Are we building the city the way we should? Is this sustainable? Is this fair to everybody? Are we being generous? Are we reflecting our God in the way that we do this? The first thing I want us to see is that with any internal problem, you have to recognize the problem first. And that's what happens. Someone cries out about it, right? That was the first verse that we saw. It said they cried out. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. I want to point out that I don't think it's an accident that they say that there was an outcry um, of the people and of their wives um, and I don't want to push this too far, right? Because I, I think generally I'm, I come from the standpoint that there are both differences and samenesses between men and women, right? Like we're all equal before God, but God does make us different. And one of the things I would advise you guys is, is listen to your wives. Listen to your wives. Sometimes they notice things that we as men don't notice. Again, this isn't always true. I'm sure there's the outlier marriage where the man's more sensitive than the woman. I know that happens. But uh, in our relationship, my wife notices things I just don't notice. That, that might be a problem that I haven't thought about, right? Uh, and so I would say, pay attention. And here, Nehemiah very wisely pays attention. And again, it's not 
just the wives, it's, it's everybody. I mean, they're all crying out. They're all saying, there's a, there's a problem. Something's broken. There, there's something going on here that's not right. And they're crying out against their Jewish brothers. Again, this was an internal problem. This was a team thing. They're saying this isn't anymore about the chapter four bad guys out there trying to kill us. This now in chapter five is about people within our own group here. We're all committed to rebuilding the city of God, but all of us committed to rebuilding the city of God, we're, we're hurting each other. Bad things are happening. I can't tell you how many countless stories I've heard as a pastor about people that left their churches and have tried a new church or maybe not gone to church at all for a long time because of how they've been hurt in churches. So the people of God, as we're trying to do the mission of God in the world, sometimes hurt each other. And we need to recognize that problem. We need to say, whoa, this is, this is bad. This is not okay. I have a picture here of shackles to symbolize what was going on. People were being enslaved. In our own history, we have a history of slavery that was a horrible atrocity, right? It's something that we've tried to recognize as a country and say that's wrong and move on from. But we have to recognize there are still ways that we enslave people today, even though we might have said that's technically illegal. We're not going to do that anymore. There's still ways that we exploit people. There's still ways that we oppress people. There's still such a thing as systemic injustice. It can still happen today. And so I think as we recognize the problem in the text, that'll help us be more aware, more alert, and we can recognize the problems in our own midst as well. Um, Look at verse 2. It says, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters were many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So it's saying, basically, there's a bunch of us. With our sons and our daughters, there's a bunch of people here. We need food. There's not enough food to go around. In verse 3, it says, there were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. So basically, they're, they're mortgaging their stuff. They're, they're putting it on hawk, right? They're, they're selling or going into debt to try to get enough money just to eat. It goes on in verse 4 and says, there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax in our fields and our vineyards. He's saying they're also borrowing just to pay the tax to the king. It says in verse 5, now our flesh is the flesh of our brother's. Our children are their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So here we see see them going into debt. They're borrowing money. They're mortgaging their fields. They're they're going into debt. And they're even selling their kids into slavery. And they're doing all these things because they're just out of money. They've moved. They've traveled from many lands to be there. They've moved and reestablished themselves. They're trying to help the mission effort. They're part of the team. They're saying, we're all in, but they're, they're hurting. And the problem is, is, again, they said, our flesh is their flesh. What they're saying is, we're, we're a part of you, right? Like, you over there, you other Jew on the same team, you have plenty, and I'm starving, and there's a problem here, right? We're all on the same team. If we're all on the same team, let's, let's help each other out. We, we have a similar picture in Acts chapter 6. I don't know if you all remember the book of Acts. When the church begins to grow in the book of Acts, Jesus has gone to heaven, and the apostles are preaching the gospel, and people are multiplying in the sense that they're just coming into the church and more and more people are coming to faith. And as that happens, we see this picture of the church sharing what they have. They're taking care of each other. But as the church grows, it got to be too much. And so in Acts chapter 6, the apostles said, you know what? It wouldn't be right for us to, to quit being about the word and prayer to take care of these widows that are getting overlooked. So we're going to nominate specific men. They called them deacons to serve them We're going to set aside these special men to take care of those that are being overlooked. So we do want to make sure people don't get exploited or people don't get overlooked or people don't get hurt in their uh, need. 
but we're not going to set aside the ministry of word and prayer. And I think that's an important principle for us to remember that the church should always be about helping each other out. We should always be about sharing our resources. We should always be about making sure we're not exploiting others, making sure others are, are coming up alongside us. But we also don't want to give up the ministry of word and prayer because if the church is just helping the poor, if the church is just helping the needy, but we're not devoted to the ministry of word and prayer, we're not a church anymore, right? We're just, we're just a charity. We're just a social service. The church's priority is the proclamation that ultimate healing is found in Jesus. So we don't preach a prosperity gospel where we say our whole goal is to all have money now and all be secure now. That's not the main idea. We preach the gospel of Jesus is your only hope and he promises a secure future. But as, as we do that, it's not right for us to say, we trust Jesus is going to take care of us, and I don't care that you have nothing. See you later. Right? I mean, we, there should be sharing that takes place. So there should be a both and with priority given to the word. A lot of people talk about this as word and deed ministry. We should always be about both. The church has always been about both. God's people have always been about both, proclaiming who God is and pledging our allegiance to him, but also at the same time physically working to care for others' needs. But the proclamation should lead because it gives a definition to why and who we're doing this for. We love each other because Christ first loved us. We're kind to each other because Christ was kind to us. We forgive each other because Christ forgave us. We enrich each other because Christ enriched us. And so that should always lead. That was what should always be the, the priority. A great book to understand this whole concept of the exploitation of the poor and what does it mean to live in justice with each other is a book called Generous Justice by Tim Keller. I would highly recommend the book to you if you struggle with understanding how this all works out. And he has a helpful section where he explains the two Hebrew words for justice. There's two Hebrew words. One is tzedekah and the other is mishpat. And so they're translated as righteousness or due or rights or justice, you know, in different, in different places in the Bible. But they both have kind of a different lens to them. So tzedekah is what we often think of as righteousness in the sense of just being a good person. And that's the sense of if you're just a righteous person, that prevents other people from being exploited or abused, right? If you're just a generous, holy, righteous person, then that's going to be good. And if everybody was righteous, we wouldn't have any problems, right? So that's tzedekah. And then mishpat is more like rectifying justice. It's more in the sense of judicial justice, of making it right for someone that's been abused or caring for a poor person like me, Christian coming up. Maybe I didn't abuse them. Someone else did, and I come up and I help them out. That would be mishpat. And so depending on your background, depending on your understanding of politics and how you grew up, you probably think of justice more in one of those terms than the other, right? You might think of justice more in terms of mishpat, which would be making things right for those that are broken. Or you might think of uh, justice more in terms of tzedekah, which is just, I'm going to be good. I'm going to live my life and take care of business, right? And what we see in the Bible is both of those are, are woven together. Both of those are knit together. You can't really separate them scripturally. So again, I would recommend that book as a great book to understand it. Another book that's really helpful is a book called When Helping Hurts by Corbett and Fickert. And what this talks about is how Christians rush in to help hurting people. And we often do it in an unhealthy way with like a Messiah complex where we come in and we're like, I have money, so I'm going to help this poor person. And of course, I'm smarter than them too because I have money. And we get all confused and, and we forget our theology, right? Our theology says, we're all sinners. We're all broken. If we really remember our theology, when we're helping a hurting person, we would walk into that relationship treating them with dignity and respect, thinking, I have just as much to learn from this person as they have from me. And although I might have a resource that they don't have, there's probably profound things that I could learn from this person that could impact me as well. 
And so the book is really helpful. It goes through practical things as well. That's just kind of a mindset issue there that I talk about. But there's practical things too. How can you help people in a sustainable way so that you're not enabling them, right? We don't want to help people in a way that just makes them dependent on us. We want to teach people to be independent, be able to take care of themselves. That would be the goal, and that would be a biblical understanding of mercy and helping others out. And then finally, a book I want to recommend is called When Love Walked Among Us. And I apologize for giving you so many books, but I think, frankly, we, we just are completely confused on this subject. So the last book is When Love Walked Among Us by Paul Miller. And in that book, he really focuses in on Jesus and his habits of interacting with people. It's a fantastic book if you want to study the Gospels more. It's a great book to go to. He just does little case studies of looking at Jesus interacting with people in the Gospels and shows how Jesus took time for people and he saw people in their pain and their hurt and he dealt with them and he loved them. And so again, I want to take you back to the heading I have here of recognize the problem. We have to recognize the problem. We have to see the hurt around us. And I think the challenge is, is when we feel really free by the gospel, when we really know that Jesus has taken care of our needs, we have the freedom then to look out to other people's needs. I can stop and, and look up from my desk, so to speak, right? I can stop and look up from whatever I'm so busy at and I can say, hey, what are the needs around me? How can I help out those around me? Are there people around me being exploited or hurt or abused? Can I help them in some way? So again, the gospel enables us to help the people that are hurting around us, helps us to recognize the problems. The next thing that we see is we see Nehemiah taking steps to correct the problem. Nehemiah decisively deals with it. He decisively deals with the problem. We see this in verse 6. It says, I was very angry. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. The Old Testament tells people they shouldn't do this, right? So in our economy, a lot of economists and Christian thinkers would say it's kind of hard to tell exactly what's, what's the same between interest in Old Testament situations. They said that's a bad idea. And today where we uh, extract interest and we loan on different, you know, for different reasons, for different things today. I would say generally most Christians and most Christian economies, economists would agree that in general, interest and borrowing credit is just a bad idea. It's just in general a bad idea. I would say you don't want to be legalistic about it and you want to be aware that there are debates, right? That there are financial debates of, well, this scenario is different than that scenario and understanding that interest is, is different case by case in different places. But in general, the biblical view is, yeah, don't, don't owe interest to people. Don't exact interest against people. Don't take out loans. Don't give loans because it's just a bad idea. You're enslaving yourself to each other. And I know what I said is, is like uh, mind-blowing for our society today because we just live our whole lives in debt to people, right? But the Bible would say that's, that's kind of a dumb idea. Like figure out a way to not live your life in debt. We teach classes occasionally on that subject, Dave Ramsey classes and stuff like that. But again, I would say we don't want to be legalistic about it, right? You don't want to think God hates me because I have debt, but you want to live your life in freedom. So here he's telling these people, this is wrong. You're exacting interest against these poor people. Too. It's, even, it's even worse when it's people that can never really pay it back, right? And so again, picking up in verse 7, I held a great assembly against them. In verse 8, I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So this is an interesting twist. They would bought guys out of slavery and then sold them to each other in slavery. Isn't that crazy? 
It's like they abolished slavery uh, over there with the bad guys, and then they said, but slavery's okay here in our own family, right? We'll, we'll do it here. It wasn't okay for the, the other guys to enslave our people. And he's saying, this is not right. Go on in verse, uh, verse 9. Well, at the end of verse 8, they were silent and could not find a word to say. So basically, their response to him was, yeah, we're wrong. Verse 9, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So Nehemiah now says, even I have done some of this lending. His language is so harsh against them that we would assume that there's a kind of a different level going on with these other guys that are selling their people into slavery and exacting interest against poor people. But it sounds like Nehemiah is saying, even I've loaned some money to some of these guys. And I'm, you know, I thought it was okay, but now that I realize the scope of this problem, this whole thing has got to stop. And so he's even including himself in this saying, we got to just stop this all together. Look at verse 11. He says, return to them. This very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment. I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who doesn't keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So he dealt with it. He symbolically sealed this promise they made. This was the symbol they would use. They would shake out their garments on, saying, look, it's all empty. I don't have any more money. I've paid everybody back. I'm not withholding. I'm not stealing now because they would, uh, basically they would have folds in their garment that would be like pockets for us, right? He's just shaking it all out. He's saying, may you be shaken out and emptied as well if, if you don't follow through with this covenant. So he's symbolically sealing this promise saying, this is the way it's got to be. We've got to make this right. We've got to deal with this go do it now. And they all say, okay, we're doing it. We're in. They all agree. It's really amazing. The problem I think we have is as Christians, we struggle with, I was very angry, right? Or some of us do. I'd say kind of 50-50, right? Some of us are high justice people that are like, yeah, anger is good. And some of us are high compassion people that are like, hey, I don't know if Christians should be angry. Um, and so what I want to do is paint a little picture for you. What is the Christian view of anger? What is the biblical view of anger? Well, we clearly have an idea that God is angry at sin, that there is such a thing as righteous anger, that there is a righteous anger out there that exists where God says, I hate evil and I hate wickedness, and there's going to come a day where he will absolutely destroy it. God was so angry at sin that he was willing to absorb the price of that anger, the punishment, the full weight of that anger on the cross, that Jesus died in our place. So in his love... He absorbed his own anger on the cross, giving us the righteousness of Christ. So we know that God is very serious about sin and that God is angry at sin. But how about us? Are we supposed to be angry? In Ephesians 4, it's a good little section on anger. In Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, it says, And in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So it's this idea of be careful with the anger, right? Like handle that with care. And the trajectory of Ephesians 4 in that section is it kind of moves from that down into verse 32 of being kind and compassionate to each other because Christ has been compassionate to us. So I think the trajectory we have there is be careful with your anger. Don't sin because of your anger. And really the goal is that you would move towards showing grace to each other, right? So again, it's not absolutely forbidding anger, but it is saying be careful. And I think we show this trajectory, this movement that we see in the Psalms. We spent a year in the Psalms uh, the year before. And in the Psalms, we would see the psalmist coming to God with his depression or with his anger, 
or with his worry or whatever emotion it was and, and being okay that he brought his emotions to God, right? So I think there's a sense in which we don't want to forbid emotions. We want to bring those to God and then we want to allow God to move us towards a proper channeling of those emotions. Another verse that's helpful is in James 1, 19 and 20. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So again, he doesn't absolutely forbid anger there, right? He says, be slow to anger. But he says, remember, the anger of man is is not going to produce the righteousness of God. Make sure you distinguish those things. Don't, Don't think in your high justice worldview that you have exactly the same eyes as God. Be careful. Be careful. And so I think the application would be that those us that are high anger people would slow down, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become anger, angry, and recognize that we can't necessarily exact God's righteousness with our anger. We can't make it so. Remember that your anger can't make it happen, right? That's, that's energy. You want to see it happen, but you've got to get a pray like we see in the Psalms. You've got to take that to God. And then I think if you're a, a low justice person, that's probably a wrong way to say it, not low justice. If you're a high compassion person, right? If you're a high compassion person that gets a little squeamish when people around you are angry, remember that probably you need to get angry about some stuff. There's probably some stuff that you need to get angry about and people may not respect you because you never get angry about anything. And there are appropriate things to get angry about. In a counseling situation, the way I think this works out really well is if, if you are a high justice person, is to articulate what you are actually angry about. Because sometimes when you're angry, you can just, you know, kind of explode. Clarify to the people around you. Because anger can be damaging. It can be hurtful. Clarify to those people, I'm not angry at you. I'm angry at the situation, right? I'm, I'm angry at this injustice. Force yourself to walk through that and articulate that and turn that into prayer and start talking to God about that. So you kind of relieve the strain on the people around you and, and the, the close people to you so that they understand you're not angry at them. And then you start articulating what you are angry about. And then those of you that are high compassion people that never get angry about anything, you need to learn the skill of saying, you know what, that is an injustice and I can see why you're angry about that and I'm angry about it too, right? I mean, you need to learn to be able to articulate that and say that is wrong, that is not just. But again, we need to remember that we have to be very suspicious of anger. Human anger is, I think the biblical posture is be suspicious of it, trust God's anger more than your anger. Don't think that your anger and God's anger is exactly the same thing. Now, what we see here, I think the, the example we see here is a positive use where he starts with anger and he channels it in a positive direction. It's similar to the good example of Jesus getting angry and turning over the tables in the temple, right? I mean, is anybody going to say it was wrong for Jesus to get angry? You don't have to raise your hands. Um, I recommend you don't say that. But I would say Jesus was perfect. And so if Jesus can get angry, it is theoretically possible that there's such a thing as righteous anger. If God can be angry at sin, it's possible that we could have righteous anger. Just be very suspicious of your own anger and make sure it's always channeled to do holy and righteous things. Don't just turn loose with it. So we see Jesus getting angry, turning over the tables in the temple because they're not honoring their father's, his father's house. So I was thinking of a kind of a positive picture of this is getting ready for a football game. I don't know if y'all have ever seen this before, a football game where you played sports we kind of like get your game face on, you get excited. Anybody ever, you've seen this before? I don't even like LSU, but it was a good picture here. You got the coach <laughs> screaming at the team. Now, he's not actually angry, right? He's not yelling, 
I'm so upset with you guys because you had a bad practice. No, he's saying, let's get ready to go, right? Like he's psyching everybody up. And I think that can be a role that anger plays. When there is a systemic injustice, when we recognize something that's wrong in the world, to some degree, we have, we have to get fired up about it. Like at some level, you got to get fired up about things that are going wrong. You got to turn that into energy that then is turned into action to do something about what's broken in the world. So I'd recommend you think about it this way. This would be a, a righteous channeling of anger. I mean, again, I'm not telling you all to go play football. I'm just saying get fired up about things that are wrong in your world, people around you that are getting hurt, and take steps to do something about it. Don't just scream, I'm angry. Do something. Do something. And that's what we see here, the example of Nehemiah. He's taking action. He's correcting the problem. He's moving it in a new direction. There's been some cool ways that we've gotten involved in trying to correct exploitation and abuse uh, through our own church, just corporately. I would say it's the responsibility of every Christian, every woman of God, every man of God. It's our responsibility to look out, to recognize problems around us, and to take steps to correct them. I would say if you're looking corporately for ways to get involved in helping those who are hurting and making right abuses in the world, there's some great ministries that, that people are involved in here. One is Hope Pregnancy Center. I'd really encourage you to help hurting people there that are considering abortion. And what we do is we come alongside them and try to help them uh, either keep that child or put that child up for adoption. And they give all kinds of material help. We would love to send more of you to get involved with Hope Pregnancy Center. Another ministry is our, our ministry to Guatemala. We take one trip every year and sometimes a second trip where we work with folks that are really exploited native people there in Guatemala who are oppressed by the majority people. And we work there to empower them to work alongside existing churches that can continue the work when we're gone. Um, there's also Celebrate Recovery where we come alongside hurting people that are dealing with hurts and habits and hangups and we try to help them walk to healing and to wholeness. Um, there's also the prison ministry. We've got a couple of people involved in a prison ministry. We'd love to get more people involved in that prison ministry. Those are just a few. There's, there's countless others as well. I know a lot of you are involved in, in other ways in the community, right? As teachers and as soldiers and things like that. But I would encourage you to remember that it's the responsibility of every Christian to, to again, recognize the problems around you and take steps to rectify the, the mishpat word, right? To rectify the wrongs around you, to live in holiness, tzedekah, personal righteousness. But as you live in personal righteousness, to take steps to make things right for those who have been hurt, those who don't have all the blessings that you have. Well, we see Nehemiah then taking steps to prevent further problems. He gives his testimony about kind of his lifestyle. How did Nehemiah live to make sure this doesn't happen again? What were his habits? We see in verse 14, he says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. So he's saying, this is a long-term habit and commitment that I made. This wasn't just something I did that week to suppress you know, a political upheaval. Oh, I better not take this tax this week because people are upset. He's saying, I did this for 12 years. So he's saying, I didn't take the tax, the allowance for me as governor. So what that means is he had rights under the laws of the empire to take money from people to feed his men and to feed himself. And he said, I didn't do that. I gave up my rights to bless the people because I was more about the mission and more about caring for the people than I was about my own enrichment. So if we go on and read further in verse 15, he says, The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. 
So see here, he's saying he fears God more than he fears man. He is fearing God more than his own uh, worry about going without. He's not just totally fixated on uh, stacking up treasure, right? He was already probably wealthy because he was a right-hand man to the emperor of the whole world, okay? So he probably had a lot of money. And what a guy in that position would have done was he would have brought his money with him and then, you know, buried it somewhere, put it for safekeeping, and then taken more money and enriched himself from those around him because those, those were his rights. But he's saying, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't use my rights because I feared God. I respected God uh, more than people. Verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for work. So he's saying, I, I also didn't acquire land. He could have become a land developer, right? He was coming in first. It was a broken city. He could have bought up a bunch of land. He could have made millions. And he said, I didn't even acquire any land. I was focused on the work at hand. And then in verse 17, moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. So he's saying, I was responsible for these 150 men, besides these other guys that came to me for help. So other people came to my table and I fed them as well, but these were the guys I had to feed. And he goes on and he says, now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. So again, he was saying, I I could have demanded more from the people a tax, the, the food allowance for the governor, right? It was his right as a governor to take from the people to feed his men. It would have made perfect sense. But he was like, well, I didn't really have to and I knew that they couldn't handle it, so I didn't do it because I wanted to take care of them. I cared more about them than my own rights. And I think we have a picture here of Jesus, right? In Philippians chapter 2, it says he gave up his rights. It says he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but he gave it up. He gave it up to come here for us, to become one of us, to be obedient to the point of death. So the picture we continually get throughout Scripture is the only reason we would ever act in this kind of crazy, generous way is because we've been acted, uh, impacted by the generosity of God. Because God has been generous to us, then we would be generous. But the law can't command this kind of generosity. That's something we really need to understand. In the world of politics, sometimes it's, it's presumed that if we just make more laws, then people will do the right thing. No, we have to have a, we have to have a heart transformation. We have to heart, a heart that changes, right? A heart that's exploding, that's coming out and is facing a different direction. We have to really believe that God loves us if we're ever going to love other people. And that's what we see clearly in the text. And he, he finishes up and he says, so I didn't do this because the service was too heavy for the people. In verse 19, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So I, I don't believe that Nehemiah is now slipping into some sort of merit theology where he's saying now, I know I deserve judgment, God, but because I was uh, kind financially to the people, please save me. I don't think he means that. I think he's saying, God, please bless these efforts. Just as you would pray when you would make a sacrifice and you would sow into other people's lives, you would say, God, please remember what I've done. Please use this. Please help this to be fruitful. Like I've invested in these kids or I've invested in these friends or I've invested in this ministry that I'm sending money to or whatever it might be. You say, God, please use this. Please remember what I've poured into this. And I pray that, God, you would make it grow. And I think, again, we have this picture that reminds us of Jesus who made the ultimate investment, sowing himself as a seed that dies in the ground that was planted that rises to new life, the first fruits that we can be a part of, of a real harvest, of a real harvest 
of righteousness. So we have this beautiful picture, this reminder here of what it looks like to go without for the sake of others. To go without for the sake of others. I have two pictures here that I think are a good object lesson. I used to use, I used to do this, I used to act this out physically when I was a youth pastor, but I'm too old and rickety now, I would get injured severely. So I'm just going to kind of model this idea as an object lesson. Here's a hurdler. I used to run hurdles, so this is why I would do this. Um, A hurdler, if you've ever watched hurdles, it's pretty cool to watch. I mean, if you do it well, you're just skimming right over the hurdle, right? Because two mistakes you make in hurdling, one would be that you jump way over the hurdle, well, then you're going to lose the race, right? Because it's slowing you way down if you're going way high. The other mistake is that you would go through the hurdle and trip and fall and maybe trip everybody else, right? So it's very precise. Got to be very careful about this. There's not a lot of room for uh, margin for error here. Now imagine a hurdler running with a bunch of suitcases in a backpack. That would not be very effective, would it, right? Like I said, when I used to do this object lesson live, I would, I would actually try it and fall, and kids would really think that was funny. But I can't, I'm sorry, my body can't take it anymore, okay? But you just can't do it, right? You, you can't go over the hurdle. You can't have that kind of focus and that kind of precision with a bunch of baggage. And if we remember that we have a goal besides enriching ourselves and collecting a bunch of baggage, right? Like we have a different race we're running. The purpose of our lives here is is not to just enrich ourselves. The purpose of our lives is to serve others for the glory of God. Now, that doesn't mean it's a sin to have stuff, right? Paul's very clear in Timothy. He says, tell those who are rich in this age to be generous. He doesn't say, tell those who are rich to repent and sell everything they have, right? Jesus did that once to the rich young ruler because the rich young ruler had a specific heart problem. But that's not the standard in the Bible. The standard is not... Everyone that has anything should just give it all up. The standard is not communism, but the standard is generosity. And so if we're focused on collecting more, collecting more, collecting more, we're going to be unable to run the race that God calls us to run. So how do we prevent more problems? One idea, one way to say it in the Lausanne Covenant, which is a, a gathering of evangelical Christians from all over the world, they covenant together, all these people from all different Christian backgrounds. It was started by John Stott and I think uh, Billy Graham was a part of it as well, but great Christian leaders started this in the 70s. One of their lines says it like this, those of us who live in affluent circumstances accept our duty to develop a simple lifestyle in order to contribute more generously to both relief and evangelism. So what they're saying is we say we should live simply so we can have more to help others. That's, That's what we should do. It's not defining it, right? It doesn't say percentage. It doesn't mean we all agree that every Christian should live in this much square footage and drive this kind of car. We're not saying that. And I would, I would argue that the circumstances vary widely, depending on your family, depending on the community, depending on your needs, depending on your health. There's all kinds of variables there. God's not angry at you for having stuff. God just doesn't want you to entrust yourself to that stuff as if it can save you. God doesn't want you to think that stuff can be your savior. He wants you to hold it loosely and be generous with your stuff. That, that's the goal. So I think just a couple of ways for us to think about this moving forward. A couple of areas. One area is just good old-fashioned greed, right? Think, think about money. What, what is the hold that money has on your life? What is the hold that money has on your life? If, if you live irresponsibly with your money, if you live in a lot of debt, don't, don't deceive yourself and think, oh, well, because God has a special heart for the poor. I'm doing the right thing by living irresponsibly and I'm in a lot of debt. Now I would say God's goal is that you would be responsible with it and you would take good care of your money so that you have more to share with others, right? So don't, 
don't swing to either extreme. There's the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel. Prosperity gospel says God's whole goal for you is to be healthy and wealthy right now. Say, no, that's not his primary goal. That could be a blessing that you can use for the kingdom, but that's not his primary goal for you. The other extreme is a poverty gospel where it says, God's whole goal for me is just be poor and give it all up. No, there's something in between. It requires the Holy Spirit. It requires for us to be walking by faith, depending on God, praying, God, how do you want me to, how do you want me to spend these things you've given me? Because they're yours anyway. What do you want me to do with them? We have to offer our stuff up to God and say, God, what do you want me to do with these resources that I have? And so I think just thinking financially, it's very important for us to recognize that that's one of the internal problems that we have as a country, as well as as a community and a church, is just understanding what to do with our stuff. How do we live generously? I think another problem that's related, that I hope this doesn't seem like too much of a stretch, is the way we understand human sexuality in our world. I've just been struck by how much debate there is about sexuality and the gay marriage debate and all these things on the news lately. And it occurred to me that part of the problem is because we see sexuality the same way we see money. We see sexuality as it's all about my personal fulfillment and my rights. But that's never been the way the Bible has defined sexuality, right? Like the goal has never been my pleasure first and everything else second. Sexuality has always been something that accompanies in scripture anyway. In, in the pagan world, it's not. It's, it's everything that the world says it is. But in scripture, sexuality is something that accompanies a, a covenant, right? Sexuality is like a fire that the Bible would say uh, is a beautiful and wonderful thing in a fireplace. And so in biblical heterosexual covenant marriage, it's protected and safe and it can be a beautiful thing. But beyond that, all the other versions that we're experimenting with, those are all based on what makes me feel good. What are my preferences? What are my desires? And we're exalting our desires as primary. We're making our desires ultimate. We're saying, my desires will save me. My desires will give me an identity. My desires will make me okay. And I would say that's never been true, whether it's with money or sexuality or respect or relationships or anything. So I think we need to repent as a culture because we've, we've misplaced these things. And that's never, it's never been the point of marriage. It's a secondary blessing of marriage, but that's never been the point of marriage and it's never been the point of sexuality either. So as we conclude, I just want to wrap up thinking about Jesus, thinking about how Jesus is the one that really fulfilled all of this. Jesus is the real Messiah, not our money, um, not our sexuality, not our whatever else it is that we look to to be a Messiah. Jesus is our real savior. Jesus is the one that recognized our problem. He, he saw us dying in sin. And Jesus didn't stay where he was, but he came after us to correct the problem, right? He, he died on the cross for our sins. He lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He rose from the dead. He, he gives us his righteousness as a gift so that by faith in him, the Father delights in us. The Father loves us. So we have that assurance we have that reconciled relationship. And then finally, we see how Jesus gave up his rights to secure our future. He prevents further problems by not holding on to his rights, as we saw in Philippians 2, but by holding them loosely, giving them up to be a blessing for us. And so he calls us to be a blessing in the same way. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in some time of prayer and a final song together. God, we thank you that you love us and that you gave yourself to us in Jesus and I pray that you would show us how to deal with the internal problems in our own midst, um, that you would help us to recognize those problems and to deal with them uh, in a godly way, give up our rights to prevent future problems. Lord, we, we pray that we could be like Jesus.
who loved us first. We thank you for sending him for us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.